right, welcome back. Hopefully your time in prayer was good. Tonight we are going to start talking about Habakkuk. And I want to warn you now that I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger this week because Habakkuk is going to ask some questions. We're going to talk about Habakkuk's second question today, but we're not going to get to God's response till next week. So I just want to warn you, you know, you're, you're going to perhaps feel a little bit like Habakkuk did, and you're going to be wondering a little bit, but rest assured, God has an answer. We're just going to get to it in chapter 2 next week. Now, the prophet Habakkuk and his book is one that I quite like. I enjoy the book of Habakkuk. I think it's a very interesting book. That being said, however, uh, the book of Habakkuk is one of the ones that we know the least about in all of Scripture, or rather I should say the prophet Habakkuk. The book, I suppose, we know just as much about as many of the minor prophets, but Habakkuk himself, uh, he is a almost complete mystery. In fact, he's so much of a mystery that even his name is an unusual one. It is not, in fact, technically a common Hebrew name. It actually comes from another language, as far as we can tell, no modern Hebrew uh, name comes from Habakkuk, but rather his name's actually Akkadian. Interestingly enough, this is the language that the Babylonians and the Assyrians spoke, um, and this is what Habakkuk's name comes from. Although, that being said, it appears that Habakkuk was a Jew. At least that's uh, our, our assumption from the text. That's what the text would indicate. Now, who Habakkuk was past that, we know nothing, at least nothing completely with confidence. He's not mentioned in any other book of the Bible, and he gives almost no information about himself in the book of Habakkuk. In fact, he just says, this is the prophecy of Habakkuk. That's it. That's all we have to go on. Some Bible scholars do suspect that perhaps he lived in the region around Jerusalem in Judea because he was clearly familiar with this area. He makes a few references to it. Since Jerusalem was also the center of Israelite life, however, most Jews were familiar with Jerusalem, so that really doesn't narrow it down too much for us, but it's possible. The other suggestion that sometimes come up is that he may have been a Levite. The reason that this is believed is because chapter 3 of Habakkuk is technically a psalm. It would have been originally set to music, so it would have been designed to be sung. And commonly, those who composed music to be sung in the temple were Levites. But, of course... There are many people in the Bible that are capable of making psalms. In fact, we just talked about Jonah a few weeks ago. He wrote a psalm. So this really doesn't, again, give us any definitive answers on who Habakkuk is. Now, the book of Habakkuk is really two questions that Habakkuk asks to God and two responses from God to Habakkuk's questions. And then a final thanksgiving for God's wisdom in his response. That's the general structure of the book. The first chapter is a question, a response and a question. Chapter 2 is a response. And chapter 3 is that Thanksgiving psalm that Habakkuk writes. Now Habakkuk is at first asking a question that is very common throughout the Minor Prophets, and that is, God, when is the punishment for sin going to occur because it is pretty bad out there. And we're going to talk about the specifics that Habakkuk points out here in just a moment. And God is going to explain the methods that God is going to use. 
God explains what he's going to do. Habakkuk questions this, and then God answers why he's going to do it the way that he's going to do it. Now, it's unique in that this very likely was not originally a message. At least that's not how it's presented to us. This probably was not Habakkuk going out to the people of Israel and preaching this material. This instead really seems more like personal communication between Habakkuk and God. Now, I suspect that Habakkuk, once he received God's answers, did go out and tell the Israelites about it. But I don't think that Habakkuk originally went out and preached this because that's really just not what the text looks like. It looks like really something that's more reflective. Habakkuk having this really heartfelt discussion with God. Uh, it's really something that he's seeking out on his own. And then he shared with others by writing it down. So it's really interesting in that regard. It's unique amongst the minor prophets. Now, while we don't know much about Habakkuk, we can, from the evidence in the book, have a very good guess about when the book was written. So that's kind of an interesting combination of factors. Usually, if we can pinpoint a date, we know a lot about the person who wrote it. But we do know quite a bit about when Habakkuk, the book, was composed and when it was written down. Now, Habakkuk must have been in Judah. The reason we know this is because he refers exclusively to Judah. He makes no mentions of Israel, and this makes sense because based on some factors I'll mention in a moment, the nation of Israel had been gone for at least a 100 years before Habakkuk received these answers from God. In fact, the specific references that Habakkuk makes to a group of people called the Chaldeans, I'll explain them a little bit more in a moment, but these are the Babylonians, uh, really indicate to us a pretty narrow date range. It must have been after 612 B.C. The reason for this is prior to that point, the Babylonians weren't much of a threat to anyone. And God describes them as riding horses that are fast as leopards, destroying all before them. So this must be after a point where the Babylonians are powerful. So that means it must be more recent than 612. On the other hand, Habakkuk expresses surprise that it is the Babylonians that will judge Israel, which means that it had to be written before 598 B.C. The reason for this is by 598 B.C., the Babylonians had actually already begun to oppress Judah. And so it would not have been a surprise that the people currently invading you were going to be the ones that God used for judgment. But it is a surprise to Habakkuk. So the invasion can't have begun Yes. So that actually gives us a pretty narrow time range of about 14 years. Sometime between 612 and 598 BC must have been when Habakkuk received his prophecy. We lost the slides there. That's okay. That, I think, is California. It's very nice. God's creation, very beautiful. Okay, I apologize. It does not look like we're coming back with the slides, so I hope you like that picture because we're going to be on it for a little while. Fortunately, that was all the background information we needed, so if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to be all over that chapter today, so we will be able to make it through without these slides. So the first problem that Habakkuk sees is, of course, the problem of wickedness, which he describes very succinctly in verses two through four. Verse one, of course, just being a very quick description of who this book is from. This is what Habakkuk says, starting in verse two. O Lord, how long shall I cry 
and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Now Habakkuk here is describing rampant sin in Judah. Specifically, he lists two things as particularly problematic. And these are things that we have discussed in other minor prophets. The first is violence. And the second is injustice, specifically injustice as in perversion of the law, as in God's law specifically. We'll get into that in a moment. The law was not being followed. In fact, even worse, the law, God's law, was actually being so distorted that it was being used to abuse people. Now, the reality is that Habakkuk does not give us a detailed picture of what was going on in Judah at this time. Of course, there are other prophets that do. For example, Isaiah and Jeremiah, major prophets, give us very detailed looks into how violence and injustice specifically was going on in Judah. Specific examples of what Habakkuk is describing here. Other minor prophets as well, Micah being a very prominent example of the kind of behavior that Habakkuk is describing here. Now, the words that Habakkuk uses are actually somewhat unique, at least for the minor prophets. And I want to point out two of them to you because you're going to be familiar with both of these terms uh, from one from the modern world, one from uh, the ancient world. The first is the word for violence. This is actually the word Hamas, which if you're familiar with the modern Middle East, there is a group that calls themselves Hamas. It means violence, but it's specifically wide-scale, interpersonal violence. This is violence that's endemic. In other words, it's at all levels between all types of different people. In fact, this is a word that's actually used fairly infrequently in the Bible. The most prominent place you might be familiar with the word is Noah's day, Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. It's the kind of violence that was going on during Noah's day. And of course, we know that God took that violence pretty seriously. Habakkuk says, God, there is violence at the level that was going on in Noah's day going on here in Israel, this systematic, problematic violence. Now, the other word he uses is his word for law. The word there is Torah, as in the five books of the Old Testament that we call the law. This is the law that's specifically being perverted. And in context, this makes sense. But if we read it quickly, we might just think the general law, like, I don't know, the ancient speed limit for your chariot. But no, this is God's law specifically that's being abused. And we really have a precursor to the Pharisees here being described. Somehow God's law is being taken. It's being twisted. and It's actually being used to oppress people. Now, by the way, that's not because God's law in any way carries a problem with it. This is evilness on the part of the people that claim they're following the law. And yet the reality remains that the law is being perverted. It's being used as a weapon to actually oppress and punish people. Now, 
God responds in verse 5. There's no indicator that this is God speaking and not Habakkuk, but we know that this must be God based on Habakkuk's response a little bit later on. Specifically, I want to focus your attention on verses 6 and 7. God acknowledges that, yes, Habakkuk, you are correct. That is a problem, but this is what he says in verse 6. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Now the Chaldeans, and I am going to try and get it to cooperate with me, or otherwise I'm just going to have to describe the map to you, are the Babylonians. And you're probably familiar with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are indeed the group of people that will come in and they will commit the final judgment against the nation of Judah. This is described in Second Chronicles, for example. It's described in Jeremiah. And this occurs in 586 B.C. This is kind of the, in a sense, the culmination of the judgments of at least the first half of the minor prophets. This is the big event that's coming together. Now, the Chaldeans were, while we refer to them as a different people group, really the same people group as the old Assyrians. And the Babylonians would overthrow the Assyrians in a great battle in 612 B.C., along with many of their allies, and they effectively replaced Assyria, but the reality was that not much had changed. Now, to a certain extent, I do want to give the Babylonians a little bit of credit. Historical accounts in general describe them as slightly less violent than the Assyrians, but that is not really a compliment, okay? Like, being slightly less violent than the next worst serial killer doesn't make you any better, but that's how the historical accounts record the Babylonians. So, slightly better, but still brutal by any definition of that word. They also, to be honest, worshipped the same gods as the Assyrians did. In fact, in their ancient history, before this point, they actually used to steal each other's gods. They'd just rip the temples up and take the statues and carry them between Babylon and Nineveh, actually. So they worshipped the same gods, identically, same names, all that stuff. They really committed the same kinds of sins. There was lots of human sacrifice and killing of innocents. Again, historical accounts claim to a lesser degree, but that doesn't make them sinless by any means. And here's Habakkuk's problem. By nearly any sense of the word, the Babylonians were more wicked and more sinful than the Judeans were. And so that leads Habakkuk to a question found in verses 12 and 13. And this is really the the crux, the important point of chapter 1 that Habakkuk really has on his mind. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them, that being the Chaldeans, for judgment. And Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art purer of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. So Habakkuk is asking a question here. How can a more wicked nation be used to judge a less wicked nation? And by the way, I really should probably have said air, put air quotes on all that stuff, okay? The reality is that sin is sin. God is holy and he cannot abide 
sin. And God's going to get into that in chapter 2. So if you'll allow me to, we'll, we'll hold off discussion on that specific angle on this till next week where God addresses it. But this is Habakkuk's question, and I do think it's an important question. God wants the opportunity to answer this for perpetuity. It's why it's in our Bible. God wants to explain to us why it is that he sometimes uses wicked nations to judge his people. And so this is sometimes also described as the problem of evil. This is why, personally for me, Habakkuk is such a fascinating book, because the problem of evil is this big question in theology that we want to have an answer to because the reality is, first of all, that bad things happen to good people, at least from a human perspective. We look at the situation. That's our assessment of it. How can a good God allow these things to happen? And secondly, the other question really in Habakkuk's question is this. How is it that God can deal differently with one group than he deals with another group? How does that work? Well, again, I warned you that to a certain extent I was going to leave you a little bit on a cliffhanger here. I assure you God has an answer to this, and he does answer it in Habakkuk 2, but we don't have time to dive in enough for good measure tonight. But I will give you at least a brief assurance while we leave the main explanation God has for next week. First of all, by God's standards, of course, we are all law or Torah breakers. In fact, that word Torah the word that Habakkuk used for law comes up several times in Habakkuk. The reality is that we are all lawbreakers, and as a result of that, we all deserve punishment. It's also important to remember that death and its misery are a result of sin. They're not part of God's design. They're not how God intended, in a sense, the way he created creation to run. It was our sin that allowed death and destruction in, and our sin, of course, that requires punishment. And finally, and this is an incredibly important message all throughout the Minor Prophets, and that is that God has provided a way to escape for those who trust in him. Judah, the nation, was going to be destroyed because their sin had gotten out of control, but each individual Judean had the option to repent. If Assyria, really the worst of the worst back in Jonah, if they have an opportunity to repent, then everyone has an opportunity to repent and to put their trust in God. And God promises that he will protect and save those who put their faith in him. So that is just to give you kind of a, a band-aid to hold you over till God's real response in chapter 2. But I want to focus on one last thing before we close for tonight, and that is the difference between Habakkuk and our good friend Jonah, who we talked about a few weeks ago. You see, Habakkuk's first chapter is all about questions for God. But Habakkuk handles things very differently than Jonah does. And I think Habakkuk, in this sense, is commendable. When we think about our view of the Old Testament, Paul reminds us that it's given to us as an example. And I think Habakkuk here is an ex a good example to follow. Because after Habakkuk asks his questions, he says this, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and I will watch to see what he will say unto me. And what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, the reality is that Habakkuk, all throughout his questions, has used language in Hebrew 
that is very respectful. In fact, in verse 12, which I read earlier, he uses an incredibly formal title of God, not by coincidence, but because Habakkuk's reverence for God is extremely high. Habakkuk isn't asking these questions of God because he's upset with God, like Jonah was. He's not asking these questions of God because he doesn't think God has an answer to these things. But he legitimately wants to know. And chapter 2, verse 1 shows us that Habakkuk also takes the required steps to hear God's answer. And this really is the kind of example that we should follow because I have good news for all of us. God can handle tough questions. In fact, he's already given us a book full of answer to tough questions. Really, we're in a better situation than Habakkuk is. Habakkuk had to wait until God responded, which he did, which is awesome. I mean, that would be a cool thing to have. But remember what Jesus says. Jesus says that with the Holy Spirit and God's word, we are in a better position than the Old Testament prophets are. We have the truth. We have the answers to any tough question that you want to aim in God's direction. He can handle it. But a couple things. First of all, let's be respectful. God is still God. And while he does things that are sometimes perplexing, they're sometimes surprising to us as humans with limited perspectives like Habakkuk, he is still God. Let's learn from Habakkuk's approach and treat God with the reverence that he is due. Number two, Habakkuk did the right things to get the answers. He waited patiently on God to receive a response and he received one. For us, the method is different. I don't suggest that you go out to the local deer blind and wait for a while. I don't think God will probably give you an answer to your question. However, if you open up your Bible and you go seeking answers, I can assure you that God has the answers you seek in our Bibles. Through the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, it will reveal the truth to you from God's Word. And that is an awesome advantage that we have today. So I want to encourage you today... It's okay to ask questions. Habakkuk shows us this, I think, but it's also important to act like Habakkuk, not like Jonah, who also had questions for God. He just asked them in a terrible way. So don't be like Jonah, be like Habakkuk, and let's explore what God responds to Habakkuk's question next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to discuss your word tonight. Lord, thank you for the answers, not only that you gave Habakkuk, but for the truth that you've given us in scripture. Thank you, God, for for answering our questions, for giving us the answers to questions like the ones Habakkuk had. Lord, help us to understand our Bibles better in the coming weeks. Fill us with the Holy Spirit as we dive deeper into your word. Thank you for gathering us together to put the focus on you. We ask all this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. And he loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And the Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ. An eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven, in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin and I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want his death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.